0: Well now, come on in. Welcome. Sit on down. You know, when you're from the south of Florida like I am, you know that for us, the time passes just a touch slower. Now that's a lesson that Kentucky Senator Mitch McConnell see lives by. Why there ain't no use in moving so fast like a cockerel with his head cut off. No, slow and easy, the country way. Now that's where all y'all city folks seem to get things mixed up. Who was that old loyal fella, Merrick Garland? Yeah, that was him. Why you Yankees got your dander up something fierce when Mitch wouldn't confirm him for the Supreme Court. There wasn't any foul play involved. He was just taking his time is all like a country boy should. Just so happened by the time he was good and ready to fill Scalia's spot, the man that was ready to take it was Neil Gorsuch. See? Not so complicated when you spell it out as plain as the face of my unmarried Aunt Jane, right? Slow and steady wins the race. Well, at least that's how it used to be. To tell a tale going around the hollow, some folks think Mitch has changed. Got mixed up with the new crowd. Started walking with a pep in his step. Why, it's all this impeachment business. Nancy Pelosi hustled it through the House and held it up before it hit the Senate, and now Mitch is all worked up. Now Mitch has got to go fast. Oh no, they call him Cocaine Mitch now. I don't even know who I'm looking at some of the time, talking like he wants to wrap up this Senate impeachment trial faster than a fox on fire. Boy, I'll tell you, no witnesses, no more arguments, just in and out like he's gonna get a sizzler coupon for every day between the 4th of July he ends it by. (sighs) Oh, those other Republicans, some of them don't know what they're looking at neither. Mitt Romney, and Susan Collins, and Lisa Murkowski. Oh, I don't blame them. Old Mitch used to get beat to the fridge by a simple turtle. Now he couldn't stop moving if you tossed him in a grain silo with a pocket full of bricks. And it's these new friends of his. What are their names? Oh, yeah. Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, and A.B. Klobuchar. They want this thing wrapped up lickety-split. They might be the only people in D.C. more pissed off at Pelosi than Trump. <sighs> well, I'm glad you could stop by take a few rails for the road, won't you? Don't be a stranger. Oh, and at the Lord Jess of everybody who supports us at TakePoliticsSeriously.com, it is my honor to tell you that PX3 begins now. So, Madam President, the House is is over. The Senate's time is at hand.
1: Hello and welcome, everybody, to the Politics, Politics, Politics program. My name is Justin Robert Young. Oh, we got some stuff to talk about. A little bit more on impeachment. We're going to talk a little bit more about these trade deals, including the one that might be more of a factor than you think because you haven't heard of it. We're going to tip you off. Because we got a tip. New trade deal, you're not thinking about, that could materially affect the election. A little bit later, we're going to have a big interview about the history of United States-Iran relations. Guys, I know that we, we do our brainy interviews on Friday, but this is a must listen, in my opinion. If you were terrified that we were on the brink of war, if you were, were wondering kind of like where a lot of this stuff comes from, if you want clues as to how we might be able to wrap up in our lifetime a better relationship with Iran, if you want to know how we got here, this is a must listen. I'm just telling you. So stay tuned. But first, Joe Biden. This guy, Joe Biden. You want to know what Joe Biden's favorite thing to do in the world is? Tell everybody that they're going to be his vice president. This began before Joe Biden even ran for president. There were reports out that Joe Biden was considering announcing his run with Stacey Abrams. The very, very close runner-up to the Georgia governor's race against our boy, Ryan Camp. let Jake smash. But since then, I don't know if there's a name that Biden has been asked about that he has not said, yeah, 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 oh, no, totally, I would love to have them as my vice president. Loves talking about vice presidents, probably because he was a vice president, I mean, I guess I'll give him the benefit of that doubt. That's why he's so excited about it. But the first one was Kamala Harris. That was kind of a surprise because Kamala Harris is the one that pantsed him in that first Miami debate. But Biden's, uh, he's an old hand at this, right? He doesn't really care. You curse somebody out in front of the cameras and you can shake hands backstage. That's just the kind of politician Biden is. He knows the game. Well, who else yelled at him? Well, Julian Castro came out and said, like, the nastiest thing on stage about him. If you remember correctly, Julian Castro publicly questioned Biden's memory. And yet, according to the Dallas Morning News, Julian Castro, oh, I'd love to have him as a VP. I think he's great. I think he's fantastic. Julian Castro, the best. Now, sure, he endorsed Elizabeth Warren, but whatever. He'd be fantastic. I would love him. Want to know who else? Beto O'Rourke. Beto O'Rourke. That's who I would love. Oh, man. I think he would just be great. Now, I don't know how much Biden means this. I think if, I mean, I, I, but let me put it this way. I don't think it's a coincidence that it was the Sacramento Bee that got the Kamala quote out of them. And I don't think it's a coincidence that it was the Dallas Morning News that got the Beto O'Rourke and Julian Castro quotes out of them, considering that they're both from Texas. However, I did do a little deep dive into the vice presidential. Betting odds. And I got a little sleeper here for you. If you want some long money, because all the big money or all, all the big odds are on people that are currently running for president. But it's in my estimation that we very rarely get these kind of unity tickets people that are rivals in the primaries, that people, that voters have good feelings about that now join forces to take on the greater enemy. That very rarely happens for a lot of different reasons. It's usually someone else. Somebody either currently in Congress, somebody who's currently involved in their own state's government, which is where I found a very interesting name in this odds list. Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer. Gretchen Whitmer right now has an approval rating in Michigan in the low 40s. So obviously it could be higher. But Michigan and Wisconsin are going to be the battleground states. They are going to be the places that this presidential contest is decided. If Donald Trump can repeat his prowess in Michigan, then this is over. So let me put it this way. Michigan is a must-have state for the Democrats. Absolutely, 150% must-have. So keep an eye on Gretchen Whitmer. Uh, That's a little just uh, PXA. That's not full premonition. It's just a little, uh, keep an eye out. Politics! All right, let's get to impeachment. Mitch McConnell, as we joked about there in the intro, is... Certainly in a very built-for-speed mood. The Bill Clinton impeachment trial took five weeks, and there are rumors that if Cocaine Mitch has his way, this one would top out at about two. In fact, some want this trial done before Donald Trump gives his State of the Union address On May 4th, which I'm letting you know right now, if that happens, that's the moment where everybody who's for this impeachment realizes what I've been warning against. Because he's going to turn that State of the Union into a Trump rally. Like we might hear sustained booing beyond just the issues. This might break down. This might be one of those, like, British Parliament situations where there's just out and out yelling and screaming at each other because Donald Trump will take, he might take a literal victory lap in Congress. He might actually just run around with his, with both fists above his head. He might just run around the entire Democratic membership. that, that, That may or may not happen. So here are the rules thus far, according to McConnell, what he wants to do. 24 hours of opening arguments of which the Republicans would use very little and a vote on whether or not there will be witnesses. Now, obviously, if there are witnesses, then this is going to go a little bit longer. If McConnell can keep the sheep in line on that vote, then this thing is going to be an open and shut case. It's going to be in and out, over and done with, very, very, very quickly. And let me just add this. The, re- the resolution that is going to guide this entire process is yet to be written. It's still being negotiated amongst everybody. If that's the case, we, we might see even further chicanery. I-, I just have the sense now that this is entering into Mitch McConnell's world. This is what he loves he loves the rules he loves the minutiae. he loves lording over everybody else in his party that they will never get a dime in party money to run for their seats again if they don't follow his lead on this right now now obviously you're gonna have your rogues your susan collins your lisa murkowski's your mitt romney's right But also, you know, cocaine Mitch could ply some of the Democratic senators. Doug Jones of Alabama might be as reliable of a vote on this particular situation than uh, Roy Moore would have been with 100 percent less cloud of suspicious sexual history. And of course, Joe Manchin of West Virginia, he might vote uh, uh, lockstep along with the Republicans. You don't know. You don't know. I'm just saying keep an eye on this because in my mind, this is Mitch McConnell. Mitch McConnell believes that this is his time to shine. Politics! While the Democrats were impeaching, it is my belief that Donald Trump was doing his very best to theatrically counter program when nancy Pelosi, uh, Pelosi, <laughs> when nancy pelosi i'm leaving that in when nancy pelosi was signing the impeachment with her customizable pens she had cut she had she did she had souvenir pens she had souvenir pens for the impeachment signing now one might ask on a very somber occasion why would you have souvenir pens to which i would say well probably because trophies were $3 more and you had a minimum order of 100 When she was signing that, Donald Trump was signing the China trade deal. Obviously, this is something that was of a, a tremendous amount of interest pretty much since the beginning of his presidency. He assigned signed phase one of the China trade deal that by and large is a lot of guarantees from China that they will be buying a lot more American products. Now, we'll see whether or not They hold to that, and Donald Trump has has now paused the tariffs rising, so there are some guidelines that they have to buy for them to fall, blah, blah, blah. But then yesterday, on Thursday, Donald Trump signed the UMCA. This is new NAFTA. But here's a deal That I didn't know about until literally when I was doing my Friday live stream on Twitch.tv slash Justin R. Young. This is the kind of stuff that pops up on the live stream. Our trade expert, Big Jim, who works in import-export, specifically with China, Pacific Rim, all throughout Asia. He said that the deal that may or may not happen, scuttlebutt around the industry, is that it could be this summer... That nobody is talking about but could, by the details that are being whispered, be more of an economic boom than anything else is a possible deal with Japan. Now I looked for information on this. I couldn't find anything on the internet. So I'm telling you just some grade A rumor from our, our trade expert in the PX3 family. And I'm sure we'll have more information coming forward. But in the grand scheme of us trying to give you things that you can go off into your life and repeat them without attribution so everybody can think you're smart when it actually happens, there we go. That's a gift. That is a bow-tied gift for you. The big trade deal coming is with Japan. Politics. Holy crap, you guys, uh, uh, yeah, 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 I, I don't even know what to say. Uh, your support over the last few weeks has been insane. This is easily the largest month that we've ever had, and and it was like that a week ago before you guys kept pouring it on. Uh, we are now roughly at about $100 away from me going to New Hampshire from me going to South Carolina and looking at the number of patrons and knowing what the listenership is on this podcast, I think there's a chance. Uh, I I refuse to let myself think that this could happen, but we're at a point now where I think it it could it might. I think eventually we will this year. Will it happen before those two? The, the two primaries i I, I don't know I, I I'm not sure, but if you want to be a part of it, take is the place to go and uh, let me just say at the three dollar level, you get the two bonus podcasts yesterday, I had a a premonition, a premonition of what would happen in Donald Trump's Super Bowl commercial that I am almost positive. Positive will take place. You can get that. You can get everything new that comes down the pike. And uh obviously with impeachment, there's a lot of daily changes, you know. Stay up to date on the Bernie Warren feud. By the way, new poll out, Bernie up in New Hampshire. He reclaims the real clear politics lead of averages from Joe Biden. So it looks like good news for Bernie so far, coming out of that god awful debate. TakePoliticsSeriously.com. dot com, come on over support us. Also, free political newsletter at FreePoliticalNewsletter.com. We are we are cooking, man. We have the best emails that come in. I'm I'm just in love with everybody that that writes in to the Free Political Newsletter. Try it out yourself. Sign up for free, Free Political Newsletter at freepoliticalnewsletter.com. You get an email, you respond to me, I'm either going to write you back or uh, I'm going to put it in the newsletter or I'm going to do both. Sometimes it's both. freepoliticalnewsletter.com. Our guest today is Osama Khalil, an associate professor of history at Syracuse University's Maxwell School and the editor of United States Relations with China and Iran Toward the Asian Century. He's also a non-resident fellow at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. He's going to give us the rundown of how we have gotten up to this situation that we are at currently with Iran. Heads up, we're... I think we're only going to have time here for pretty much up to the hostages in the 70s. So if you're expecting the full timeline, we're going to I don't know if we're going to have time for it because we have a lot to get to. But first, let's go ahead and introduce them. Uh, Usama, welcome to the show.
2: Thanks for having me. Happy to be here.
1: OK, so obviously we have uh, Iran on the mind lately. It was a massive topic of conversation during the most recent presidential debate, but what we'd like to do on this show is try to give the larger context so we can understand things a little bit more. We've already talked on the show a lot about where Iran is now, but for many listeners, especially the younger ones, uh, these are two countries, the United States and Iran, that have circled each other for, for many, many decades. So what would be the best starting point for our relationship with this nation?
2: Well, that's a great question. I think I think you're right. I think for a lot of uh, perhaps your younger listeners, uh, they won't recall um, kind of the, the origins of the tensions between the United States and Iran uh, some four decades ago or the fact that there were friendly relations between the United States and Iran for almost three decades. Um, so I think when we, when we talk about the history of, of relations, they really kick in at the end of World War II Um, And that's where you can see the United States, you know, as it starts to adopt at the end of World War II, kind of its role as this global superpower and taking on more responsibilities around the world. Iran becomes an important place, one, because it borders the Soviet Union. It's a major source of oil, not for the United States, but for the United Kingdom and for Western Europe. And what the United States is really concerned about at the end of World War II is how is Western Europe going to be rebuilt And, and Japan? And so, oil from Iran and from the Persian Gulf is going to be seen, and particularly cheap oil from Iran and the Persian Gulf is going to be seen as a way to underwrite the rebuilding of Western Europe. It's going to be a major part of the Marshall Plan, the plan to rebuild Western Europe, but Mm. also uh, the Truman Doctrine. So, for your students who may, for your listeners who may or may not know this, the Truman Doctrine was really kind of the broad framework of containment to contain the Soviet Union uh, and. Guides the United States through the Cold War.
1: Yeah. And and, and just and just to give modern context, obviously, the Marshall Plan, very influential in terms of rebuilding Western Europe. But also many listeners might remember this because uh, Pete Buttigieg, uh, the presidential candidate, has made his mention that he wants a Marshall Plan for Latin America, that these are still frameworks that are. Talked about and used now, although we seem to be in a very retro chic element of politics where we have a Green New Deal and a Latin American Marshall Plan. We we want exactly, to, I guess, yeah. a, 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 re- reboot culture is not just for television and movies. We're also bringing it into politics. But please go ahead.
2: No, absolutely, and that's a great point. And I, and I think uh, you know most students either don't know about it or know the reference, but um, but it, again, and it doesn't have that same weight I think for a younger generation that even it has for. You know, my generation or or your generation um, or, for for instance, their parents. So uh, what's going to happen effectively is because of Iran's geographic position, because of its vast oil wealth, because England, in this case the United Kingdom, is, is heavily involved in Iran um, before and then, of course, after World War II, the negotiations over oil will become vitally important. Uh, So Iran, as it emerges from World War II, is going to see, like many countries do in the developing world, or what we call the developing world, a rising nationalism. And one of the things they want is uh, more revenue, basically, from their oil products that are now – what we're seeing is in the late 40s is most of those revenues are actually going to the United Kingdom, not to Iran. And this is gonna set off a crisis, a crisis of nationalization. We're gonna see this across the developing world, where you see a number of developing countries that wanna become independent, um, but also wanna become economically independent, um, and are starting to throw off some of these old relationships that they've had, particularly with whether it's the United States or with the European colonial powers like Britain and France. Uh, This is gonna come to a head in the 50s with the emergence of an Iranian nationalist leader and Mohammed Mossadegh who becomes elected as prime minister and will nationalize Iran's oil. Um, This is going to set off alarm bells in London uh, who are deeply opposed to the nationalization of uh, Iranian oil, who are deeply opposed effectively to Iranian nationalism, but also in Washington. And from what we can tell as historians, beginning somewhere in 1950, 1951, there's going to be discussions between Washington and London over what to do about this charismatic figure in Iran who is not just uh, you know, embracing nationalism in Iran, but has now become a symbol for the broader developing world. Um, many countries that are still under colonial, European colonial rule, uh, who and we're seeing burgeoning in the late 40s, early 50s, and this will last into the 70s, burgeoning liberation movements and anti-colonial movements across what then becomes known as the third world, and we now call the developing world.
1: And just, just, um, just real Mr. quick, just to put into everybody's mind, time frame wise, remember when this is, this is the 1950s, which uh, obviously in American yep. lore, this is the can do, build the national highway, very much car culture, roadside, plastics, like th- th- this is, oil is essential to the framework of our, our economy, if not our identity, on a level that I, I don't even know if we can comprehend now. Uh, in 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 the same way
2: and this is a great point but but what's most important is that for uh, I think for your listeners to keep in mind is in the 1950s the United States is exporting oil it is a major oil producer it's an oil power Um, and the United States will remain an oil power until the 1970s so you're absolutely right that this is a period where the United States has a preponderance of economic power right something like 55% of global manufacturing output comes from the United States We're seeing the rise of the interstate system where we will by the 1950s, more cars, the rise of kind of suburbia in the United States. But the oil in Iran is not coming to the United States. This is still destined for Western markets, gotcha, uh, for Western European markets, right? So, um, And there is a debate among historians because one of the things we've learned over time um, is what actually are the discussions between Washington and London? Is this about a fear of communism? right, that Mossadegh, the the prime minister, this nationalist prime minister, that is she a communist? Is she kind of opening a window to communism? Um, Is there just a broader threat because one of the more popular parties, even though Mossadegh himself is not a communist, the Tuday party, the kind of Iranian communist party, is very popular. And it's part of this broad coalition of which Mossadegh sits at the head. So it's a broad coalition of nationalist parties that includes communists. This, of course, is going to raise... Alarm bells, uh, both in Washington and in London, and of course in segments of Iranian society. Uh, this will come to a head in 1953, after, uh, shortly after Eisenhower takes office. Uh, several years of tensions between Iran and the United Kingdom, as well as between Iran and the United States under first the Truman administration, then Eisenhower. And the Eisenhower administration is going to make a decision. Um, that they want to overthrow the Mossadegh government. So when we talk about kind of, you know, there's a prehistory to U.S. involvement in Iran, but one of the places you could really start it is with the coup, the 1953 coup that overthrows Mossadegh. Um, And, of course, the fact of the CIA's involvement in it, the fact that it includes elements of the Iranian military, some elements of the Iranian clergy, uh, as well as British intelligence. Uh, So Mossadegh will be overthrown in the summer of '53 the Shah of Iran will be effectively reinstalled as a strong monarch. He was, he was there effectively as a constitutional monarch. He is one of the forces behind the coup. Uh, he's a young man. And when he co- becomes reinstalled by the United States, he's effectively going to now input. They're going to build up the Iranian military with American help. They're going to, more importantly, build up the Iranian Secret Service, what becomes known as the Savak with the uh, with the help of the CIA. And uh, ironically, the New Jersey State Police will be one of the key trainers huh. of the Saddak. Well, yeah. Can, can I ask you a question? Why, um,
1: why is it the United States, and at that point in 1953, Eisenhower is in his first year as president, uh, and right. not Western Europe, for whom seems more economically tied to the region?
2: All right, so again, this is, and this is a debate that historians actively have, right? And so one of the questions is, the United States and the Eisenhower administration knows that most of not a communist, right? The question now becomes, is he, through what they see as kind of his demagoguery, his uh, the style of rule, is he opening the door for greater communist influence in Iran? So even though he's not a communist, through the instability that he's creating it yeah. to see it, will the Communist Party come to power, okay? And this
1: is a very real fear. At, at this point, the idea that
2: yeah, or it, and remember, I think I think for your listeners, it may seem like. Um, and, and remember, this is the World War II generation. So the World yeah. War II generation, you know, Eisenhower himself is a general. He's the man who oversees D Day. He's Supreme Allied Commander. Uh, remember that Hitler comes to power through elections. So the fact that Mossadegh is elected, they will often that generation will see election and view them very skeptically, in part because of the way Hitler came to power in Germany. Uh, and in fact, you can go back. Um, I do this. With my students uh, will look at some of the media coverage of Mossadegh in '51, '52, and '53 leading into the coup. And this is in whether it's in the British newspapers or in American newspapers like the New York Times. References to Mossadegh as Hitler, right? And so it's really wow. fascinating what the you know what exactly what they're what they're tapping into this idea that elections can be an opening for demagoguery and for you know, tyrant rule, and effectively, and then essentially, another pathway for the communists to come in. Because remember, the Soviet Union is right next door, all right? It's the northern neighbor. Um, so one of the questions then is, is it, is it about communism and the sphere of communism, or is it really about the control of oil? So to answer your other question, so what is the United States' interest here? So one of the things we find out is after the coup, after Mossadegh is overthrown, the Shah is reinstalled, there will be a negotiation and a new oil consortium is created to now manage the Iranian oil uh, and undo the nationalization. And of that consortium, the United States is going to take – United States oil companies will now take something like 60 percent of the profits from that mm. consortium. So coming from having zero, right, <laughs> when it was a, a, British, uh, a, a British corporation called the American, the American Iranian Oil Company, which later becomes British Petroleum to then fully nationalized by the most of that government, then nationalization is undone. You have an American-British consortium that comes in, and the Americans are now taking something like 60% of the profits, at a minimum 40, maybe as high as 60% of the profits. So there is definitely an oil component here uh, to the story of the coup.
1: Now, from my understanding of Eisenhower, who obviously is elected coming out of World War II, He seemed to govern as an internationalist and somebody that would want an international consensus on on certain decisions. And and obviously we see that on nuclear decisions going forward. But uh, is this a plan? Is this a fear that lingers from prior to him coming in? Is this a a State Department thing or a Pentagon thing?
2: Right. So this is, again, one of the things that as historians as we've gone back and we started to trace this. There's uh, one of the threads that we're seeing is that that these discussions were going on under the Truman administration. The discussion about what to do about Mossadegh. Should he be should should we overthrow him? Right? Should we work with the British? The British are going to come to Washington very early, uh, shortly after the nationalization, right, is 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 put in place, fifty fifty one, and start talking to the United States about overthrowing Mossadegh. The problem is the United States is already heavily involved in the Korean War. So there's an international yeah. frame here. And by the time efforts really come to pass by 52, when they're really talking about this in earnest, one of the things we can tell is that elements in the State Department who are having this discussion, uh, as well as in the, the CIA, which is fairly new. I think your, your listeners probably don't realize the CIA is not really created until 1947. Right? So it's only a few years old at this point. Uh, the discussion is you know, we're in the middle of an election year. This is a bit too much to handle right now considering we're bogged down in Korea. Uh, We're basically going to leave this for the next administration. And the next administration comes in being Ike uh, at 53. And almost immediately after coming in, from what we can tell, there are feelers from the Iranian military and from the Shahs. Remember the Shahs there as a weak constitutional monarch saying, um, again, how would you feel about getting rid of this the the quote-unquote crazy man, Mossadegh. So there is a deeper thread. It's not just about Eisenhower, there's a deeper thread. But what's important about the Iran, uh, to your point about Eisenhower's view of governance and the the international arena and anti-communism, is that the Iran template, because it's so successful, will be adopted by Ike and by the CIA under Alan Dulles uh, as a model for other overthrows. And that'll include, within a year, overthrowing the government in Guatemala, Mm. Now we're in the Western Hemisphere. There'll be other attempts through the 50s. Some will be successful. A number will fail, including an attempt in Indonesia that fails, an attempt in Syria that fails. There are a number of these models that are followed, including with many of the same players.
1: All right, so the the overthrow happens, and uh, uh, obviously everything is great, and it's uh, universally hailed as an amazing decision that will never have any
0: repercussions, Right.
2: Oh, absolutely. So what's interesting is one of the things the United States does is an immediate embrace of the Shah. And so what you're going to see from 1953 almost until he's overthrown in 1979 is the Shah will be portrayed publicly as America's Cold War ally, as a a strong, moderate leader in a troubled region, a staunch anti-communist uh, and He'll, he'll You know, these glowing profiles of the Shah of Iran, Mohammed uh, Reza Shah Pahlavi, rather, in American press. He'll be embraced by academia. For instance, he'll get honorary, an honorary degree from Harvard. He'll have a number of uh, uh, friends in the press and in academia that are always constantly talking him up as this great reformer, moderate leader. He will also, you know, of course, encourage this. The other aspect that's really interesting about, you know, the next two decades is what we know is that there are discussions within the State Department um, over the next two two decades saying, you know, we really have to encourage him to reform. We have to encourage more more democratic uh, governance in Iran because you can't have a one-man state. And effectively, these will always be kind of pushed to the side. And one of the discussions over and over again through successive administrations Um, from Ike to Kennedy to LBJ to Nixon to Ford until finally when he's overthrown under Carter, uh, we'll see this constant thread. And almost always, you know, when these discussions happen, the debate that comes up is we can't find an alternative that is either more popular than the Shah or as reliable for American interests as the Shah. And so, of course, you know, the discussion goes away. The other thing the Shah is really effective at doing is, of course, maintaining relations with different American politicians. So, you know, your listeners may or may not know that, you know, of course, Ike is president, Richard Nixon this is his vice president. Mm-hmm. And the Shah will maintain close relations with Richard Nixon. He has tense relations with Kennedy in the beginning, they get better. Kennedy's assassinated, of course. But the Shah has longstanding relations with LBJ. L- Lyndon B. Johnson was the Senate Majority Leader. Mm-hmm. So he has. Good relations with LBJ. LBJ sees him as a staunch anti-communist. There's also an international aspect here. Uh, As the United States gets more deeply involved in Vietnam, LBJ, who's deeply insecure and is under a lot of pressure, is looking for kind of America's allies to stand up and support him. And the Shah is one of those who will publicly come out and say, we absolutely support what the United States is doing in Vietnam. And then Nixon's elected, and this is his longstanding friend. So there's a public discussion of it, especially in the press, in academia, about the Shah as this, as this great moderate ruler, a man who's reforming this country, who, who as oil prices start to rise in the 60s and 70s, and starts pumping more money uh, into the Iranian economy in a way, in, in several different ways, who's seen as kind of a modernizing, a modernizing monarch, is, is the phrase we'll often hear, especially by the 60s into the 70s.
1: So he knows how to play the game, and I guess this this immediately just to skip ahead a little bit gives you a little context right. as to how uh, when when things start going dicey under Carter, he has such preferential treatment.
2: Absolutely, and he and he's he's very savvy at at playing both the press and American politicians. Um, he is, of course, uh, you know he's also very worldly. He you know he speaks English, speaks French. So he knows how to play to – and if you think about – remember, this is – we're talking 1950s, 60s, 70s. He knows how to play in different world capitals. He knows how to travel well. He has a very glamorous wife. Um, as oil revenues start to increase and will start increasing dramatically in the 60s and the 70s, one of the things the Shah begins to do, as, as many autocrats do, is we'll start adding to kind of the trappings of rule. So you'll have you know these, these amazing, amazing palaces, these glorious celebrations of Iran in the modern era that also trace back to kind of ancient Persia, trying to draw this line between the Shah's current rule to that going all the way back to Cyrus the Great. For your listeners who have watched you know movies like 300, etc., yeah. <laughs> know these kind of references, right? You know, so that's what he knows exactly what he's tapping into, and of course. He has a very willing audience uh, with a number of American politicians. And part of this also ties into, by the 70s, America's troubles in Vietnam. And so when Richard Nixon becomes president and comes into office in 69, one of the things the United States is looking to do is reduce its international commitments because the war in Vietnam is going so badly. This is part of kind of this pullback from the international stage. And who steps in for the Persian Gulf is the Shah. And this also takes us back to a comment uh, we talked about earlier. By the 1970s, the United States is no longer a major oil exporter. It's now importing more oil, including oil from the Persian Gulf. Part of that has to do with we now have this massive highway system. We have suburbia. And there are now something like 200 million cars and trucks on the road, basically one car for every individual in the United States, roughly. Um, And that has put, and and especially with oil, because of the greater amount of oil consumption, that has now made the United States more rel- more de- uh, reliant on and more dependent, rather, on oil, including from the Persian Gulf, but also from other countries in the Western Hemisphere, whether it's Canada, Venezuela, and Mexico. Okay, so so um, just
1: just uh, uh, let me uh, to to draw a circle around it. The inversion right. of us exporting to importing is because of demand. We just create such massive yes, demand. Okay.
2: Yeah, absolutely. It's now a massive there's a, a massive amount of demand now it's now kicked in. But there's all I mean we could you know if we get into the full the full impact of kind of we could be here for another hour. Sure, sure, about sure. The oil <laughs> There's other you know yeah exactly, and there's other issues we could talk about, including about you know there's not enough exploration going on. The cost because you know, there's also a cost here, right? So there's a cost yeah. of actually drilling for oil in the United States. Versus actually, you know, the transport of it for refining All right. from the middle. Well, East, then, then, then right? look, we're so, we we're we're,
1: we're, we're going to have to have you back on to do <laughs> the politics of oil. But uh, let's let let's go ahead and, and, and stick. I don't want to bore your listeners. No, no, no. So so let's bring it in here because there is a fascination on Reddit, for example, and I know with a lot of uh, uh, younger folks who are interested in politics now that when you look at modern Iran. There is this uh, uh, fascination with pictures and advertisements from the 70s yeah. in which Iran is a very Western European or Western uh, American kind of culture. It, it looks very mod. Right. It, it looks almost identical to what you see in in Israel, for example, That that this is right. this open culture that is being affected by the west and obviously that is not where they are right now so let, let's let's join there in in the in the in, in the swing in 70s as things obviously are headed for a big change
2: right so sure so one of the things you want to think about is there is of course the public image of iran that that the shah wants to get across all of this of course ignores what's going on underneath so one of the things is as oil Revenues increase and they're going to spike dramatically through the 70s due to a number of different issues. One of which is, of course, a broad sweeping nationalization um, across most of the oil producing states, including not just in the Middle East or North Africa, but around the world. Uh, So prices are going to increase. Those increases will be passed on to consumers because of nationalization. Now, the second thing is increased demand globally, not just in the United States, but globally. The third thing is the impact of the 1973 Arab-Israeli War, and then the Arab oil embargo. Now, Iran is not Iran is not an Arab country. I think many of your listeners may get this confused. They are a majority Muslim country, but they're not an Arab country. And they're not going to participate in the Arab oil uh, boycott. In fact, the Shah is going to open up the pumping, because he wants, as, as prices spike, he wants more money coming in. The point uh, where this comes to a head is what he does with those funds. The Shah is now going to go on a wild spending spree, and we're going to see Iran's defense budget under the Shah increase something like 800 percent over five years. So he's buying everything the United States will sell to him. And so we have these great discussions as historians where we see uh, President Nixon and Secretary of State Henry Kissinger uh, both discussing with the Shah about all these armaments he wants. They also want him to step into this role as the United States pulls back of becoming kind of the local policeman of the Persian Gulf. And they're willing to support this, selling him as much as he'll buy. What we end up seeing is by the mid-70s is the Shah is, of course, overspending, And it's unsustainable. And so we're going to have an, out-of, you know, basically an out-of-whack economy in Iran, high inflation, High movement from, uh, from rural areas, into urban areas, and a lot of dislocation. And this is going to create a lot of discontent with the Shah's regime. The other thing that's going to create this discontent is that there is no opening, there's no liberalization within Iran, right? He's still this autocrat who's mm. cracking down. This is what's not seen in the pretty pictures. Yeah, he's, It's cracking down on any descent, right? Uh, he's going to come in this way in 53 after the coup, cracking down, targeting the leftists, and he will continue that. Um, And that's going to continue into the 70s. The other thing uh, that that I think maybe your your listeners might be interested in is, so there is this this sharp divide, right? So you're seeing these pictures of the wonderful modern Iran, right, in the 70s. In the United States and in Western Europe, for for example, through the 70s, the largest population of international students in the United States were from Iran. Mm -hmm. Uh, Same thing in Western Europe, in, in places like London and in Paris. Here's the problem as they're coming into these amazing American universities and getting trained in all kinds of liberal ideas and ideas about free expression and freedom of inquiry, they know what life is like back in Iran, which is that if you criticize the regime, if you criticize anything, uh, you're going to be arrested, likely tortured. And if you're lucky, you get out of prison. Uh, Many are disappeared. Many are killed. So we're going to start to see that same group that should be kind of embracing the shock who are going to turn against him. And so through the seventies are going to be a rising protest movement against mm. the Shah and the Shah's rule among who largely are, are Western educated liberal minded Iranian students. And okay. that will come to a head with the 70, the 78, 79 revolution.
1: And so, so now you not only have obviously forces for an Islamic revolution, but also on the other side that what is happening in Iran is is not a true Western uh, uh, you know, nation state that and, and then that, that should oh, be that exactly. should
2: be changed. Yes. And so one of the things I think that, that perhaps uh is is lost in the story is and, and there's two pieces here, which is you have kind of the facade of, of the Shah that has been presented as kind of this this Western modernizing reformist ruler, right? And then the reality of it. And then you have this other issue of a broad-based now opposition that's emerging to him, that one of the things, even when we disagree with, you, with each other, so you're going to have you know, radical Islamists on one side, you're going to have nationalists on the other, and in between kind of secular leftists, right? One of the things that they agree on is we have to get rid of the Shah. We may not agree on what replaces him, but we agree that he has to go. And so the revolution, in, in, as it comes to a head in seventy-eight, seventy-nine. 79 is going to be a very broad base across many layers of Iranian society and that, that agree on that the Shah has to go. They'll be successful in overthrowing him, but one of the unintended consequences of the 25 years of the Shah's rule and this fixation on communists and leftists is that that's who the Shah and his, uh, the Shah's secret service, the, the Savak, has been really effective in cracking down on has been on the leftists. What they've ignored is, in fact, and, and one of the few areas where it becomes possible for the people to meet, to organize, mm. um, and to criticize are in the mosques, right? And this, in part, allows that Islamist opposition to really coalesce, to organize. And so when the Shah leaves in January of 79, who's going to step in? It's going to be the Islamists who are going to come in really in full force and really take over, co-opt the revolution. And so it wasn't an Islamic revolution at first, but it certainly becomes one by the end of 1979.
1: Now, this is where we wind up getting into, obviously, one of the most painful chapters of American and Iranian uh, relations from the American perspective. And that, of course, is the hostage crisis that comes as part right. of the Islamic revolution. Uh, Obviously, this is something that we could probably do a whole interview on, uh, yeah, uh, right. singularly. But if we were to get the kind of a uh, uh, ten peso version of uh, for for people who right. don't understand, uh, what was the hostage crisis?
2: Right. So. And I think there's some confusion about this because of the Ben Affleck Argo movie. So I think most people, when they hear about the hostage crisis, think that Argo is the hostage crisis, right? And that's not the case at all. So no, that's, so yeah. I think one of the one of the problems here is that popular culture has kind of confused this issue. Um, so as I mentioned, you know, this is not an, an Islamic revolution. At first, <coughs> excuse me, the Shah has fled, uh, initially going to Cairo. And in Egypt, but here's the problem, the Shah is sick, he has leukemia. And he is going to be invited into, uh, by the Carter administration, brought to the United States for medical treatment. His family is already here. And because of that, there's going to be large-scale protests outside the U.S. embassy, the embassy will be stormed, and some 50-plus Americans will be taken hostage, including the CIA station chief, a number of other uh, diplomats will be taken, and they'll be held for over 444 days. And there'll be, this is going to lead to uh, a huge embarrassment, not just for Jimmy Carter, because it becomes a nightly event uh, in the U.S. of discussions on the nightly news about, you know, this is day 300 of the hostage crisis, or day 200, day 100, yellow ribbons we tied around trees. Um, And the, the Carter administration is going to look really weak throughout all of this. It's going to be made worse in March of 1980. Um, and, and now we're only, you know, we're about six months into it. It's going to go on for another six months after, uh, where the Carter administration is going to launch a failed effort uh, to rescue the hostages. That's uh, just going to be a huge embarrassment because um, a number of soldiers and airmen are going to be killed out and Delta Force members out in the desert, in, West, in Iran's western desert, at what's supposed to be one of the staging grounds. And so the mission's aborted. But of course, the fact that there are, you know, there's a burnt out husk of a C 130 transport plane, a couple of Blackhawk helicopters. Uh, The Iranians, of course, will make, you know, now under this this new revolutionary Islamic regime, is going to make a lot of propaganda hay out of this failed mission that this was God's work, right? Um, But, you know, the Carter administration continues negotiating throughout all of this. In fact, they successfully negotiate the release of the hostages. However, in one kind of final spiteful move, uh, Tehran at this point will not release the hostages until Ronald Reagan comes into office. And so it's one of these – now there's a lot of debate about this, about whether or not – there there seems to be some evidence, although it's still – we're still learning a lot about it as historians – that uh, that there may have been some some backdoor shenanigans uh, through third parties trying to delay the release of the hostages until Reagan came in. There have been a number of conspiracy theories about sure, this, and and we're still learning about it. I mean, it's still one of these things where there's a lot more uh, to be learned about. Yeah,
1: but <laughs> at, at this point, these people have been kept captured for 400 days, right? <laughs> you
2: know, it, 400 days, and and listen, yeah. and not just captured. I mean, some have been you know, horribly tortured and yeah. heavily interrogated. This is, you know, it is, uh, this is not comfortable by any means for anybody. And, um, and in fact, you know, when, when you talk to some of the former hostages, um, some were aware in fact of the failed rescue plan and then were horrified by it because there seemed to be a lack of understanding what, what the administration or what the military thought they knew about the rescue yeah. Was very different from the way that the hostages were being kept, and it would have been a massacre. So, it, it, in a way, it was just a a a, hu- there's a huge difference. Let me let me put, just so your listeners to listen so you can understand. I think we had this idea of you know the American military or the CIA kind of being all knowing, and and in nineteen seventy nine, nineteen eighty, that's certainly not the case. It's not the case today. And then how little information they had on the goings on in Iran was really revealed by the hostage crisis.
1: And this is something that I really do want to kind of underline, because I do think it gives context to what happened recently, that the the fact that the United States kills General Suleimani after he is present at a massive, possibly violent uh, 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 protest at the Iraqi embassy, I think is no coincidence. Like, these, these mean very very specific things in the cult in in the series of history and you know for for Carter to go 400 days with theoretically an act of war being declared on day 1 right. that that was irreparable to his presidency and it's the reason why to this day when you look at a president who only has one term and then leaves in reality, you shouldn't look at George HW Bush, who was effectively the third term of a Republican administration, but rather to Carter and that, that killed his presidency.
2: Yeah. I mean, there's, there's, you know, it's one of these things where when we look at kind of the many failings uh, of, of the Carter administration, um, you know, Iran sits at the center of it, uh, the Iranian revolution and the hostage crisis, um, you know, one of one of his biographers talks about the fact that, you know, Carter inherited a terrible situation and then made a, made the worst of it, right? right. Um, you know, but he also has – you've got the hostage crisis. You've got the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan at the end of 79. You've got – and the end of, of, at that point, good relations between the United States and the Soviet Union that had been developing through the 70s. You have um, a really weak U.S. economy, high inflation, high unemployment. An, an energy crisis that's linked to the situation in Iran, but is also separate from the situation in Iran. So it's a mess in 79, 80, and, and Carter's having a real, and I think any a number of presidents would have had a, a difficult time dealing with it. Carter has an especially difficult time dealing with it uh, for a number of different reasons. Uh, and one of them is, you know, it's also important for your for your listeners to understand that in, in 1979, 1980, the situation of the U.S. military is very different from 2019, 2020. Um, part of this has to do with the Vietnam War and how much the United States mm. has pulled back. Part of this has to do with America's military presence in the Persian Gulf, which at that point, although it had one, was nothing like what it is today. Uh, so, it's, uh, and, and part of that, you know, one of the things that happens with the hostage crisis and then the failed rescue mission is that Carter is actually going to implement a number of initiatives, including – building up what eventually becomes Central Command. This will be picked up on by Reagan and then expanded by other presidents. So you're going to see this dramatic change in response to the Iranian revolution and to the hostage crisis of America's military footprint in the Persian Gulf. Now, part of that's also deliberate, as I mentioned. Through the 70s, as part of the United States pulling back uh, because of Vietnam and relying on the Shah as its regional policeman. When the shot falls, this this has a huge impact on American strategic planning as part of the Cold War, uh, as well as within the Persian Gulf. And so there's going to be this decision that you know we're going to have – now we, the United States, will have to have a direct involvement in the region in a way that we can no longer just rely on our regional allies. They're fine as kind of a tripwire in a way or for an immediate response, but we need to be able to have the immediate response as well as a long-term strategic position here – Uh, That is longstanding. And in fact, that's what's been built uh, are these these, something like now 800 U.S. bases around the world, and so many of them are fixed in and around the Persian Gulf. These aren't all post-9-11. Some of them are Cold War, some of them Mm. are post-Cold War, and some of them are post-9-11.
1: Well, uh, I'll tell you what, I, I obviously we have, uh, you know, a few decades to go until we get to the modern day, but we are already over time here. So we'll have to bring we you are, back. Okay. Uh, uh, we'll have to bring you back to talk, uh, talk more about it, because I, I think that this this certainly gives uh, a, a, a basic primer leading up uh, through the uh, uh, you know inception of the Islamic Revolution and obviously the, the hostage crisis. But. Uh, let me just thank you so much for, for helping us out no and throwing that in. Uh, of course, uh, Professor Osama uh, Khalil is an associate professor of history at the uh, Syracuse University Maxwell School and the editor of the United States Relations with China and Iran Toward the Asian Century. And, of course, you are a non-resident fellow at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. Is there anywhere uh, online where people can follow you? Um,
2: you know, I think... Uh, I. Not really. I mean, I don't okay. really have a, a huge social media presence, <laughs> so I kind of, uh, I, I, I've, I've kind of kept that deliberate, you know. So, uh, but yeah, no, I appreciate the opportunity, Justin. I'm happy to do it.
1: No problem. Thank you so much for joining us. Take care. Politics! All right. Before we wrap up, let's take a few emails. Of course, you can send me one: theyoungamerican at gmail dot com. Mark writes. I feel like you rightly called out Bernie as a high support floor candidate early, where he will always have some percentage of people who are Bernie or die types, which is similar to Trump's base from a numbers standpoint. But is anybody talking about how the Bernie bro types are growing just as abrasive and unbending as the 2015-2016 Trumpers were? Like, being a zealot seems bad, even if it's for a guy with good principles. Chaotic good and chaotic bad can both still be off-putting. So, there's a few vectors to this. I, I, I think that there is no denying that both Bernie Sanders supporters and Donald Trump supporters are enamored with somebody that they uniquely believe to be a change agent. And if you uniquely believe... That one person is a change agent, and there are elements to them that either by their deeds or by their origins, just make them the skeleton key, then you can't accept anybody. Like there's nobody that's the same thing, even if they're close, that key that the, you know that slightly differently shaped key does not open the same door if that makes sense. So there is an element of devoutness, I think, to both camps. Where I I want to pump the brakes a little bit is I think we have a real problem of otherizing camps of people that we might not like by making the behavior of some of the crowd the behavior of all of the crowd. Now, are there loud a-holes amongst those groups? Yes. I don't think that we would have a hard time finding them. Does that mean that his supporters are that? No. I fundamentally think not. In fact, I think that it is a tried and true political strategy that oftentimes gets amplified by the media to do that. And I think that Bernie Sanders is somebody that has come very, very far and obviously has found a, 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 an audience for his message. And I think we should look at the message because he's very clear about it. If a bunch of people are yelling about it and are, are really mean or, you know, shoot a sitting congressman, that's not, that's not everybody. We should understand that that's bad, but we shouldn't think that every Bernie Sanders supporter is going to shoot a congressman. Marin writes, I just heard the last podcast with Andrew Heaton. Some feedback you guys are just enjoyable to listen to when you're discussing stuff that is naturally infuriating. Oh, I could talk to Heaton forever. I spent last night texting him quotes from uh, <laughs> quotes from the, one of the books I'm reading about 1964 for Raise the Dead. That's that's my relationship with Andrew Heaton is texting him. Quotes from a book about written in 1965 about a presidential race that happened in 1964. And finally, Commander Fish writes, Klobuchar pretending to be Iowan is just another entry in a line of Minnesotans making the same mistake when running for president. I was born in Wisconsin and lived there for 25 years, so you could sort of say that I have a degree in Midwestern studies. That mistake is the same that her, Michelle Bachman, and Tim Pawlenty made is thinking that Midwesterns, uh, Midwesterners like each other. Nope. We hate each other. There is no Big Ten equivalent to SEC pride. Quite the opposite. There are unmatched levels of passive aggression and thinly veiled contempt. But understandable, you know. That's a very Minnesotan mistake to make. Also, there's surprisingly little media market overlap between Iowa and Minnesota, but that's a less fun reason. Love the show. Keep up the good work. Commander Fish. I love that. I I always love the little rivalries, the little things where you're like, because it's one of those fascinating truisms in life to me that the closer people are together, the more they tend to hate each other. You are know, whenever you're like, like, oh, like North and South Carolina, they should love each other. They're both Carolina. Nope. They hate each other more than they could hate anybody else outside, right? I love that Iowans hate Minnesotans. If you're an Iowan who hates a Minnesotan, let me know. In fact, all Iowans, let me know which Minnesotans you hate the most. In fact, when I go to Iowa, that might be the only thing I ask people. I'm, I'm going to try to ingratiate myself at random bars and just be like, <laughs> man. Minnesotans, am I right? And that's going to wrap it up for us today. I want to thank our Titanic, $10 tier, Jonathan, Nick, Frozen, Jim, DL, Lindsay, Steven, Japandroid, Squids Mixtape, Jaime, Adam, D. Laser, Andy, Paul, Mike, and Brad. If you want to join the ranks of these beautiful human beings, you can head on over to TakePoliticsSeriously.com. Of course, if you want to email us, it is theyoungamerican at gmail.com. If you would like a history podcast in your life, Raise the Dead is available now. Hey, by the way, we're about to enter into a moment where these debates matter more than they've ever mattered before, which means you need... The Contender, the game of presidential debate in your life. Head on over to Amazon right now. Now's the time that you want to buy it as a gift for your friends, for their uh, birthdays. If you just get together and talk about politics, go ahead and get it now on Amazon. The Contender, the game of presidential debate. Watch me live on Twitch, twitchtv Young talking politics usually about 4 days a week, but if you follow me on the Twitch app, it'll notify you as soon as I go live. And our free political newsletter is at freepoliticalnewsletter.com. Until next time, this is your old pal Justin Robert Young saying. Politics has three names, and some shows talk about politics. Others talk about politics, and still more, man. They're talking about politics. But this, this is the only show that talks about
0: all...